you're listening to uh, On Israel, a monitor's podcast from Tel Aviv. I'm Ben Kaspit. Imagine someone telling you a decade ago, a year ago, or even a few weeks ago, that the leader of the Muslim Brotherhood in Israel would become Benjamin Netanyahu's guardian angel and the great hope of many of the Prime Minister's ardent supporters. Would you have believed them? Well, amazing as it sounds, this is exactly what happened a few days ago when the leader of Israel's Islamist party and Islamic movement, Knesset member Mansour Abbas, delivered a live address to the nation, the Jewish nation. It happened at 8 p.m. on April 1st, and Abbas proved he was nobody's fool. He slid elegantly into the primetime slot that has Netanyahu's name on it at the start of the evening news shows after three days of hype and promo fit for Hollywood star. Every word of his five-minute speech was measured. Netanyahu's prospects of political survival now depend on what people make of the words Mansour said or didn't say. For most Israelis, uh, not to mention those on the conservative and nationalist side of the spectrum, the Islamic movement is a major taboo. Netanyahu himself said clearly on the eve of the March 23 elections that he would never form a government that depends on the Knesset votes of the Islamic party. But the election results did not fit this ideology of which Netanyahu has been a vocal mouthpiece for ages. With the votes counted, it turned out that Netanyahu's only hope of a majority for his government are the four fingers of the Islamist representatives that just elected to the Knesset. This sister party of Egypt's Muslim Brotherhood, of Gaza Hamas, and of Turkey's authoritarian ruling party turned overnight into Netanyahu's lifeline. Minutes after the Abbas speech and its cliches about peaceful coexistence and the brotherhood of people and religions, Bibi's well-oiled propaganda machine spun into action, printing out seals of approval for the Islamic movement. Even if this whole event ends in disaster, as most analysts believe, there is no denying that Benjamin Netanyahu, the self-appointed guarantor of right-wing ideological purity, has paved the way for government cooperation with Israel's Arab parties for the first time in 72 years. Even he would have a hard time denying it. Today on Israel's guest is uh, Shimrit Meir. Meir is a journalist and commentator. Uh, she's a leading, mid- leading Middle East analyst and columnist for the Idiot Achronot newspaper and longtime journalist with more than 15 years of experience researching and covering the Arab world and the Palestinians in particular. She serves as the CEO of Link the Center for Strategic Communication in the Middle East, and is the founding editor of Israel's largest Arabic media outlet, Al-Masdar. Fluent in Arabic, Hebrew, English, and French, Ms. Meir was the Arab affairs correspondent and commentator for Galei Tzal. She's one of the most popular analysts in Israel right now, and she'll be here with us right after this short break. 
If you're listening to this podcast, you obviously care about the Middle East. And if you do, you should probably be reading El Monitor. El Monitor is a global newsroom headquartered in Washington, D.C., with a network of over 160 contributors around the world. El Monitor offers first-class reporting and analysis from a range of perspectives and an approach that represents the highest journalistic standards, as well as an award-winning commitment to press freedom and independence. If you haven't done so already, visit us at elmonitor.com, check out our articles, and sign up for our free newsletters. There's a lot to choose from, including the Week in Review, an essay that offers unusual insights and forecasts into the region based upon El Monitor's outstanding reporting. And if you haven't done so, please subscribe to our El Monitor podcast on your favorite podcast platform, on Israel with Ben Caspit and on the Middle East with me, Andrew Parasoliti. Now let's say uh, hello and shalom to uh, our friend and colleague, Shimrit Mayer. Shalom, Shimrit. Shalom, Ben. We're supposed to talk, and we will, about uh, the unbelievable events in Israeli uh, inner politics between uh, Jews and Arabs, Muslims and Jews, etc. But I cannot start this, uh, this uh, 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 podcast without uh, asking you about what was, uh, I think the breaking news uh, was by the Washington Post about the, the alleged plot against uh, King Abdullah of Jordan. And uh, uh, the reports are uh, uh, talking about uh, around 20 suspects or uh, detainees. Uh, Prince Hamza uh, is in a house arrest. And now in the last hours in Israel, there were rumors or, or news about a foreign intelligence service that was in the in this plot and and maybe contacted the the prince's uh, wife in order to have a, a special airplane uh, to escape etc etc first of all is it a surprise because we have a long history with the jordanian uh, hashemite kingdom and many times that the israeli mossad alerted the late king hussein about plots and coups attempts etc what do you think well, it is a surprise and it isn't, um, and I'll explain. It is a surprise um, in terms of the game, games of throne. Um, yeah, the 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 little rival, not little, big rivalries without within the royal family. Um, we did not see it coming in a sense of Prince Hamza, even though there were there was a lot of talk um, around him and around the fact that he is not content and he is talking about the king and the general incompetence of the government during the COVID crisis, etc. But um, we usually the conventional wisdom, um, whether it is in Washington or in Israel, is that the monarchy itself is solid. Um, and in, in that sense, that was a surprise um, and how vocal the king's reaction was, how public, how extreme it was. Um, but it wasn't a surprise to, um, I think, anyone who watched closely what's going on um, in Jordan in the last months or so, um, and because this kind of 
um, of, of challenge that Prince Hamza presented and presented in his own voice and words, whether it was in English or in Arabic, um, in his little stories or video that he recorded and gave to his lawyer before his Wi-Fi was, was, uh, was cut. Um, this kind of challenge is only possible um, when you feel that there is a side, guys, there is a this is this is where the people is at, and in the last months there were several incidents of um, of demonstration in all major cities in Jordan. Um, the general background is, of course, the the closures and the mishandling of. Um, the, the pandemic and the economic crisis and unemployment and corruption, um, etc. Uh, but there is a growing sense of um, unrest. And I think what, um, what really triggered the king um, is, um, is two things. One is the fact that uh, Prince Hamza communicated directly with the, the heads of the tribes, uh, the Bedouin tribes that are the source of legitimacy of the monarchy in Jordan. Um, and it wasn't just casual meetings, you know, sitting by the fire, which they did. And then of course posted it on social media. This looked more like primary. So that was one. And the second thing is the fact that he badmouthed his brother uh, to foreign people, elements, and etc. Now, as you know, um, and I'm sure many of our listeners know that the the internal intelligence in Jordan, uh, the Muhabarat, is extremely competent yeah. and efficient, um, and they did not have you know it wasn't difficult to trace this and to 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 flag it to the king but i think the fact that he was that nervous about it is because he's very um nervous about what's going on in the kingdom and the and fact that we know about this in a mentality of growing yeah you were you were saying ben Yes, if, if, if I want to summarize this uh, 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 paragraph in our conversation, let's talk about the Israeli angle. It catches uh, this event uh, that we still don't know its magnitude, catches the Israeli-Jordanian relationship in a very low point, especially between King Abdullah and Prime Minister Netanyahu. Do you think uh, if, for example, we will find out within a day or a week or a month that the Israeli Mossad was the whistleblower uh, or something like this that we, we experienced in the in the past, will it affect the, the deteriorating uh, relationship between the two countries? Well, I would, I would say that we as Israelis have a tendency to um, what, you know, um, former national security advisor McMaster used to call uh, strategic narcissism. It's all, everything is always about us. Yeah. I, I don't think this, this one is, is directly about us. I think it was the other way around. The fact that the king 
recently felt, and his son, by the way, and his son that visited, that wanted to come and visit Jerusalem, that and this wasn't going very well, and this what started the recent um, conflict. Um, the fact that they were reacting in such extreme way, I think reflects the nervousness the general nervousness and the internal unrest. Now, Israel, as you know, in terms of institutions, regardless of the back and forth between Netanyahu and the king, but institution-wise, establishment-wise, um, the IDF, the security um, establishment is very pro-Jordanian and pro-stability in Jordan. This is almost you know, in the core beliefs of the system, whether it's good or not, it is what it is. So I would assume that if we had any shred of information that might put the stability in Jordan at risk, of course, we would have done, we or the, you know, the yes. relevant people would have done everything in their power to stop it. Okay, now let's move to our main uh, issue uh, this, uh, in this conversation is that the speech, as we called it, last uh, Thursday, uh, the whole Israeli nation, Arabs and Jews, uh, religious and secular, uh, leftist and the right-wingers, etc., were expecting and waiting for two days to hear you forgot you forgot straight and gay <laughs> yes <laughs> and uh, no, it's relevant in that sense of yeah. course it's a, it's extremely relevant it, yeah. it was speech by the leader of the muslim brotherhood and an arab politician that was uh, i think no one knew his name a few months ago in primetime television. And my first question to you, Shimrit Meir, is if you had to give a headline to the Abbas speech itself, what would it be? Well, I think exactly what you described is it's, it's the moment. It's this primetime moment that I think will be, will be remembered when you have your entire politically, political scene dependent on someone that up until recently was A, not known, and B, considered to be, um, you know, an ally of terrorists um, in a general, you know, discourse in Israel, and someone who's completely, you know, far away from possible kingmaker in, in Israel. So I, I think the moment was that, and I think if you want a headline, I would look for the, the word that was not mentioned. And the word that was not mentioned was Palestine. So he neglected to mention Palestine and he got a lot of criticism about it in his, you know, from his constituency um, and his community. And their explanation, the, the, the Islamic movement's explanation, and that's textbook Muslim Brotherhood. And if you know how they operate, it's just classic. They said there is a place and a time for every saying. We adapt our message to our target audience now. That's conventional wisdom. Every politician does that. That's targeted communication, and that's all well and good. But in the case of the Islamic movement, and especially in the case of Mansour Abbas as a politician, he really took it to the next level. For example, he can say, um, he can say, run an entire campaign and leave the joint list 
and start an, a party on the case of anti-LGBTQ rights and objecting conversion therapy as a law as as a law um, and and just run an entire campaign about this and then give an interview to an Israeli podcast in Hebrew and say, well, I have no problem with gays and everyone should live the way it lives. Completely an opposite message. Um, and I think the same thing with um, the more heavy political um, Arab Jewish issues. So he did not mention Palestine in his speech, but a couple of days later on his Facebook page, he um, went to the grave of Abdallah Nimr Darwish, the founder of the Islamic movement in Israel, and he called him Sheikh of Palestine, um, Sheikh Palestine. So um, you see that they really are trying to do something that is, um, I don't know what the results, the immediate political results would be, but it's really not sustainable in the long run because eventually they will have to decide what they are. You can be vague for a couple of weeks, couple of months, not more. Um, and and I think it's um, it's he 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 did something remarkable, as you said. Nobody knew who Mansour Abbas is couple of months ago. He did something very courageous, uh, very, you know, very brave. He, he, he ran his own campaign, he won, um, and it was a brilliant campaign, even though I have to say he had all the resources he needed. Um, but now he has to cash it. And this and is the has... big question. He, he celebrates a very big victory on his rivals, you know, I think they're more experienced politicians, very, very experienced, like Ahmad Tibi, Dr. Ahmad Tibi, and Ayman Ode. But the, the, the question is, and try to predict, 10 years from now, what will be the first line in the Wikipedia entry on the Mansour Abbas? Um, well, that's, that's, a, that's a very good question. Um, and I, I well, uh, do you know what will be the first Wikipedia entry on Netanyahu? No. <laughs> um, so, so it's very touch and go. But I do think that it, this is money time, because the the next couple of days, and you know the you know the the arithmetics and the pace of the internal uh, political back and forth better better than me, but. Um, but this is money time because he did not, you know, we portray him as the kingmaker, but he, but he's the, but he clearly prefers one specific king. He doesn't want to go with the center left. He wants to go with Bibi Netanyahu. And he played his hand in a way that will allow him to go to a coalition with the right wing in Israel. And that provokes many questions, even within his supporters, that would have maybe preferred that he will side with the other camp. Um, but he prefers to go with Netanyahu. And Can many... you explain it? Why Netanyahu is the, the prefer op preferred option by the leader of a party, which is the, the sister party of uh, Hamas and of the Muslim Brotherhood in, uh, in, in, in Egypt and of uh, the uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan's party in, in Turkey? 
that's in, that's that's extremely weird to me. And I don't want to, you know, I don't want to get into conspiracy theories. Uh, but I do feel that that that's very peculiar. Up until several years ago, he was busy trying to um, reconcile Fatah and Hamas. And suddenly he's a key element in Netanyahu's future coalition. Um, so there is there are a couple of explanations. Some would say he, he feels more, he and the movement, and he supports feel more at ease with a right-wing conservative government that is religious, that will allow him um, you know, to maintain the, the social structure of the Arab society, i.e. no foreign influence such as, as we mentioned, LGBTQ, etc. Um, also, he feels that uh, Netanyahu is very fragile politically um, and will be more dependent on him so he maybe can get more. Also, another explanation is, is he really wants to distance himself from... Um, from Ayman Oda and the traditional alliance of the Arab parties with the Israeli left, because he, as he communicates, he said they kept on disappointing us. Um, and that's true. This is how many Arabs see. The last time Ayman Oda did the same thing, he went with Gantz only to find out that Gantz doesn't want to go with him. Um, but there is another, but, but, but yet there still remains a question mark um, and my and and I would like to also point that it doesn't get you would think that people such as Erdogan um, such as Hamas in Gaza that day in day out criticize Netanyahu and express only hatred and resentment towards him would criticize their own person, Mansour Abbas, that is cho choosing to give him, um, to, to, to save his political life. And no, they are not. They are not, the, the Turks are even voicing some kind of support and the rest of the players are quiet. They let him, they, they, they allow him the opportunity to, to, to make this move. Um, so I think that's that's really that's really interesting, and that's not a good sign for future government of Israel. Interesting that is would another be... statement I think to this situation. Yeah. Even I, uh, we in Israel uh, we're used to you know to chaotic uh, reality, political reality. This is a uh, huge news, and I want to ask you. Whatever we we think or say, and we will go on talking about what what uh, Mansour Abbas did. We cannot deny uh, that he smelled or felt the right momentum or or a, or trend within uh, Israeli Arabs that I think they're they're little tired of talking about and spending seventy two years about occupation and Palestinians. They want to take part in the Israeli political game. They want to influence, and he did it. He felt it. And how, how can you explain to me that he? The, the, the conservative Muslim ide ideologist and not other Arab political leaders like Ayman Ode or Ahmad Tibi was the first to identify this willingness of, of Israeli Arabs to set aside the flags and symbols of Palestinian nation nationalism in order to, to achieve their dream of uh, integrating into Israeli society. Well, first of all, you ran a brilliant campaign. 
and the other parties didn't. They ran a very old campaign. Um, it did not hurt that he had a lot of money because the, the Islamic movement is generally speaking a wealthy movement. Um, and he, he, he put it into a very good use. So he ran a great campaign that combined um, religious and conservative um, messaging um, together with let's be with a message, another message of let's be the kingmakers. Um, let's try and cash our um, our electoral influence. Um, I, I think that's one. And, and and another point that I think it's important it is important to make is that um, the situation within the Arab society in Israel is desperate, desperate, especially in a sense of uh, handling with organized crime. Um, and if you cannot open a business without, with Arab organized crime, if you cannot open a business without um, being forced to pay um, to, you know, Protection to criminals. And yeah, and if you cannot go to sleep without hearing shooting um, out your window, and if you feel really a life of fear uh, for your children, for your community, um, this has gotten to a point of, of, of imp it, it, it impossible to bear. It is impossible to bear. Um, of course, unemployment and um, the consequences of the difficult year of the COVID and um, uh, housing issues, et cetera, et cetera. They really are keen to get the attention and the resources of the state. And they tried with Ayman Ode um, in the last cycle and they failed. Now they are trying and they give a chance to Mansour Abbas with the Islamic movement. Um, and if they will fail this time around, um, I'm, afraid, I'm afraid there will be consequences. I'm afraid people will lose hope um, and lose faith in the Israel democratic system and the procedure and the, the weight that their vote has. So we are walking on a thin line where because of the Israeli political deadlock, um, they can only be partners if they are the kingmakers. And the Arab parties being kingmakers, whether it's from a hyper-conservating Islamic angle or from a nationalistic Palestinian angle, it's just not healthy and sustainable in a situation that remains um, the Jewish state in conflict with the Palestinians. This is just not going to last. This is just isn't healthy. They can be partners, but they cannot be the party in which the sustainability of the government is dependent on and of the prime minister. So there is some kind of a tragic element. Um, and one should hope that there will be someday along the line, I don't know, 10 years from now, five years from now, hopefully a year from now, a government in which they can be partners, but not necessarily carry the burden of be the king makers. Yes, we, I think we both hope uh, to reach this day. 
knowing that uh, Netanyahu did not fall in love suddenly between uh, the, the last election and uh, today with the Muslim Brotherhood or so. Maybe he did. Maybe yeah, he did. <laughs> who knows? No, no. Uh, is it taking Abbas for a ride or is Abbas taking Netanyahu for a ride or is each other advantage of the other in equal me- measure? What do you think? Um, I think nobody is innocent here and nobody is uh, naive. You know, people, um, his competitors, Abbas's competitors are saying, um, Netanyahu is going to use you and then throw you away just like he did to anyone. He's a Machiavellist, um, etc. And he's just shrugging. He's, well, I know Netanyahu and I, there is, it's not a, you know, romance between us. It's a very, um, you know, calculated, cold relationship. Now, Netanyahu's um, PR team was in the know of the speech. They knew the content of the speech. But Netanyahu is playing um, an interesting game of testing the water, testing the Israeli and especially the rights public opinion, um, not leaving too many footprints. For example, he did not meet with him. He, during the campaign, saying that he's competing on the same votes. He wants to gain the votes himself. Um, So he's distancing himself um, uh, from him. And and Abbas doesn't. And Abbas is, is much more invested in this relationship because everybody knows that he gambled on Netanyahu. He can say until tomorrow that he's the kingmaker and he can go either way, but his, his entire campaign was we, sh- we might go with Netanyahu. So, yeah, I, I think it's a politically dangerous game for, for both of them. And we can see the, the kind of reaction in the Israeli right. Um, that is excluding Abbas from a future government. And both sides might pay a price, but as you know, Netanyahu can get away with things in public opinion, especially in the right, um, that nobody else can. Although this stunt can can be one bridge too far or something like this, we will know in the future. And my last question, I want to, to zoom out to the region. Netanyahu has uh, embraced Abbas, but uh, the fact is that the Arab countries with which he recently signed normalization agreements, the so-called uh, Abraham Accords, regard the Muslim Brotherhood and similar groups as uh, threats to their rule at best. Some, like Saudi Arabia, have uh, outlawed them. How do the Gulf states, the Saudis, the Egyptians, the Jordanians, view this strange alliance within Israel? Um, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, generally speaking, they prefer not to get into the insanity of Israeli politics. <laughs> um, all, all they try is to stay away from this. We saw this from the UAE recently, um, etc. Here and there in Egypt and in the Emirates, you can see one or two articles saying um, that are criticizing not Netanyahu, but the Muslim Brotherhood that are um, willing to sell themselves to whoever is ready to buy them and that they are traitors, etc. cetera. Um, but that's a, f- a way of attacking the general movement of the Muslim Brotherhood. But again, it's not um, a huge phenomenon. Um, 
I, I say, and generally speaking, I have to say in the Arab world, um, there is an understanding that the Arab citizens of Israel are, generally speaking, in a very, uh, between a rock and a hard place. Um, and they have to make concessions and they have to adapt to a situation that is almost impossible, living in a Jewish state and being Palestinians and Arab and Muslims. Um, so they don't get much criticism, even if there is a lot to criticize. Um, and, and as for Netanyahu, I think that with or without connection to the, the his move, the latest move with the Muslim Brotherhood in Israel, um, the uh, you know the, the steamy hot. Um, I don't know, exciting phase of the Abraham Accord, or as the new administration is insisting, call, calling them the normalization uh, agreements, is behind us. We are in a different phase uh, with the change of the administration. And everyone is adapting. And I think that both the change of the US administration, that is much uh, less enthusiastic and much more cold um, in regards to the agreements and also the instability, the political instability um, of Netanyahu just cooled everyone down. And uh, it's just not, um, it's just not trending, so to speak, at the moment. Um, so I think like everyone else, people are trying to understand where this is going and how it's going to play out. Uh, but they are not interfering. I think they are wiser than that. This was uh, an exciting and very uh, highly interesting conversation. I thank you very much for joining us here in On Israel, Al Monitor's podcast from Tel Aviv. Thank you very much and shalom. Thank you. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of the award-winning media news site, El Monitor, where we cover the Middle East with some of the best reporters and columnists anywhere. And I'm excited to announce our new podcast, On the Middle East, where each week I will interview newsmakers from the U.S. and the region about the latest news and trends with additional commentary from our on-the-ground correspondents. Those of you who follow the region know that what happens in the Middle East doesn't stay in the Middle East. And to cite another great movie line, every time the U.S. tries to get out, the region pulls us back. Your time is valuable, so let me promise you this. You will learn something and you will never be bored because each week we'll be talking with and listening to those leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in this critical and fascinating region. So please subscribe to On the Middle East with me, Andrew Parasoliti. Thank you for staying with us. I think the most interesting uh, question uh, that uh, Shimrit Meir and myself were uh, dealing with is uh, why did Mansour Abbas, or, or at least it looks like he, he decided or chose uh, to uh, Benjamin Netanyahu and the Israeli right wing, on the other side uh, is a, a lot more logical for him to, to pick uh, which is the Israeli left or central left with a, with a long uh, uh, cooperation with the, the Arab parties in the Knesset and elsewhere. And Shimrit said that uh, 
She thinks that Mansour Abbas, who is a, a conservative Muslim politician, feels better with right-wing conservative government and with the ultra-Orthodox that already declared support in this, this whole movement and all the plan to, to, to form a government with the support of the Muslim movement. And uh, she also said that uh, maybe Abbas uh, recognized or felt that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu right now is a lot more fragile and he desperately needs uh, uh, someone to make a business with or a deal with. And it's, it's the best time to find Netanyahu as a partner and to get maximum uh, benefit from him. And he also, according to Shimrit Meir, wanted to distance himself from whatever happened till now. And all this uh, Ayman Ode and Ahmad Tibi traditional uh, alliance with uh, the with, uh, old-fashioned uh, left in Israel that actually brought, uh, on the bottom line, nothing to the Arab voters and the Arab society. Uh, Shemrit uh, Meir also said that uh, uh, Mansour Abbas's decision to, to neglect the, the outer uh, uh, issues like Palestinians and occupation, etc., and try to get inside into the Israeli society and Israeli politics and become a partner came from desperation. Uh, by the way, she, she said he held a great and brilliant campaign with a lot of resources, unlike the other side, the, the, the Joint Arab Movement that held the, an old-fashioned campaign. And he, he saw and uh, he read the map that the, the situation within the Israeli-Arab society is desperate. Uh, people cannot uh, open new uh, businesses there without paying a a protection money to, to, to organize crime, a huge rate of assassinations and killings among the Arab society, unemployment, and actually the, 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 the situation is impossible to bear. And he decided to make an historic decision and then go for it. And by the way, she, she was not totally optimistic because first she knows, like we all know, that on the side of Netanyahu it is not real. It's a political stunt, maybe a stunt of the desperation. And the more interesting thing she said is that uh, being uh, suddenly from an, an odd duck uh, on the outside, becoming the kingmaker of Israeli politics is premature. And it's not very healthy and not sustainable for the, the Islamic movement or an Arab party in Israel. It can become also very dangerous. Hope you found it uh, interesting and hope to find you here next week on Monday in On Israel in Al Monitor. I'm Ben Kaspit from Tel Aviv. Take care.